Chapter 4 of Hester, A Story of Contemporary Life, Volume 3, by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Doubts and Fears. The abruptness with which Edward Vernon retired from the discussion with his partner and agent had a singular effect upon both. Neither accepted it as done in good faith. It surprised and indeed startled them. What they had looked for was a prolonged discussion, ending in all probability in a victory for Edward, who was by far the most tenacious of the three, and least likely to yield to the others. So easy a conclusion of the subject alarmed them more than the most obstinate maintenance of his own views. They were so much surprised, indeed, that they did not communicate their astonishment to each other on the spot by anything more than an interchange of looks and parted after a few bewildered remarks about nothing in particular, neither of them venturing to begin upon a subject so delicate. But when they next met, reflection had worked upon both. Neither had been able to dismiss the matter from his thoughts. They met indeed in a most inappropriate atmosphere for any such grave discussion at Ellen Merridew's house, where they mutually contemplated each other from opposite sides of the room, with an abstraction not usual to either. It had a great effect upon both of them, also, that neither Hester nor Edward appeared. Roland had known beforehand, and reconciled himself as well as he could to the former want, but Harry did not know it, and was full of curious and jealous alarm on the subject, unable to refrain from a suspicion that the two who were absent must have somehow met and be spending at least part of the time together, free from all inspection a thing which was really happening, though nothing could be more unlikely, more unprecedented, than that it should happen. Roland did not think thus. He knew very well that Edward had not attempted to hold any intercourse with Hester, and felt that as far as this was concerned there was no extra danger in the circumstances. But Harry's alarm seemed to confirm all his own ideas on the other matter. He missed Hester greatly for his own part, not that he did not do his best to make several of the Redborough young ladies believe that to recall himself to her individual recollection was the special object of his visit, but that was a mere detail of ordinary existence. It was Hester he had looked forward to as the charm of the evening, and everything was insipid to him without her in the feminine society around him. It was not till after supper, when the fun had become faster and more furious, that he found himself standing close to Harry, whose countenance in the midst of all this festivity was dull and lowering as a wintry sky. Harry did not dance much. He was a piece of still life, more than anything else, in his sister's house, loyally present to stand by her, doing everything she asked him, but otherwise enduring rather than enjoying. This was not at all Roland's role, but on this special evening when they got together after midnight, the one was not much more lively and exhilarating in aspect than the other. They stood up together in a doorway, the privileged retreat of such observers, and made some gloomy remarks to each other. "'Gets to look a little absurd, don't it, this sort of thing, when you have a deal on your mind?' Harry said out of his moustache. And, yes, gaiety does get depressing after a while." Roland remarked, after which they relapsed again into dead silence, standing side by side. "'Mr. Ashton, what do you mean by it?' cried Helen. "'I have given up, Harry, but you usually do your duty. Good gracious, I see three girls not dancing, though I always have more men on purpose. I don't know what you boys mean.' 
Let us alone, Ashton and I, now. We've got something to talk about, said Harry. His sister looked up half-alarmed in his face. I declare, since you've gone so much into business, you're insupportable, Harry, she cried. It seemed to bring the two men a little closer to each other when she whisked off again into the crowd. It's quite true, said Harry. Let's go into the hall where there's a little quiet. I do want awfully to talk to you. What do you think about Ned giving up that business all at once when we both stood up to him about it? I was awfully grateful to you for standing by me. I scarcely expected it, but as for Ned giving in like that, I can scarcely believe it even now. It was not much like him, it must be confessed, Roland said. Like him? He never did such a thing in his life before. Generally, he doesn't even pay much attention to what one says. He has a way of just facing you down, however you may argue, with a sort of a smile which makes me fit to dance with rage sometimes. But today he was as meek as Moses. What do you think? I don't half like it, for my part. You think, after all, he was in the right, perhaps? No, I don't. I never could do that. To risk other people in that way is what I never would consent to. But a fellow who is so full of fight and so obstinate to give in, that's what I don't understand. You think perhaps he has not given in, Roland said. Harry gave him a bewildered look, half grateful, half angry. Now I wonder what I've said that made you think that. Nothing that you have said, perhaps only an uneasy feeling in my own mind that it isn't natural, and that I don't understand it any more than you. Well, said Harry, with a long breath of relief, that is just what I think. I don't believe for a moment, do you understand, that Ned, who is a real good fellow all through, here he made a slight pause and glanced at Roland with a sort of defiance as if expecting a doubt, which, however, was not expressed means anything underhand, you know. Of course I don't mean that. But when a man knows that he is cleverer than another fellow, he'll just shut up sometimes and take his own way, feeling it's no use to argue. I don't mean he thinks himself cleverer than you, Ashton. That's a different affair. But he hasn't much opinion of me. And in most things, no doubt he's right. And I've never set up to have much of an opinion." "'There you are wrong, Vernon,' said Roland. "'You have the better judgment of the two. "'Edward may be cleverer, as you say, "'but I'd rather throw in my lot with you.' "'Do you really say so?' cried Harry, lighting up. "'Well, that is very kind of you, anyhow. "'My only principle is we've got others to consider besides ourselves.' "'Precisely so,' said Roland, who had heard this statement already. "'And you are quite right to stick to it, "'but I confess I am, like you, "'not quite comfortable about the other matter.' Has he means enough of his own to go in for it? If so, I should think that was what he intended. Harry shook his head. We had none of us any means, he said. Aunt Catherine took us, as you might say, off the streets. We were not even very near relations. She's done everything for us. That's why I say doubly don't let us risk a penny of her money or of what she prizes above money. You may think we were not very grateful to her, Harry continued, but that's only Ellen's way of talking. If there was anything to be done for Aunt Catherine, that little thing has got as true a heart as anyone. But we were not wanted, as you may say. Ned was always the favourite, and so Nell set up a little in opposition, but never meaning any harm. I feel sure of that, said Roland, with a warmer impulse than perhaps Mrs. Ellen in her own person would have moved him to. And then he added, after a pause, I think I'll open the subject again. 
If Edward Vernon means to do anything rash, it's better he should be in my hands than in some, perhaps, that might be less scrupulous. I'll see him tomorrow about it. There's no time lost, at least. That's capital, cried Harry warmly. That's exactly what I wanted. I didn't like to ask you, but that's acting like a true friend, and if, as a private person, there's anything I could do to back him up, only not to touch Vernon's, you know. Their privacy was broken in upon by the swarm of dancers pouring into the coolness of the hall as the dance ended. But up to the moment when the assembly broke up, Harry continued, by an occasional meaning look now and then across the heads of the others, to convey his cheerful confidence in Roland, an assurance that now all would go well. Ashton, too, had in himself a certain conviction that it must be so. He was not quite so cheerful as Harry, for the kind of operations into which Edward's proposal might bring him were not to his fancy. But the very solemn charge laid upon him by the old people had never faded from his memory, and Catherine Vernon and herself had made a warm impression upon him. He had been received here as into a new home, he who knew no home at all. Everybody had been kind to him. He had met here the one girl whom, if he could ever make up his mind to marry, which was doubtful, he would marry. Everything combined to endear Redborough to him. He had an inclination even, which is saying a great deal, to sacrifice himself in some small degree in order to save a heartbreak, a possible scandal in this cheerful and peaceful place. Edward Vernon, indeed, in himself was neither cheerful nor peaceable but he was important to the preservation of happiness and comfort here. Therefore, Roland's resolution was taken. He had come on purpose to dissuade and prevent. He made up his mind now to further and secure the management of this overbold venture, since no better might be. He knew nothing, nor did any but the writer of it know anything, of the letter which Catherine Vernon's butler had carefully deposited in the post-bag, and sent into Redborough an hour or two before this conversation, to be dispatched by the night mail. The night express from the north called at Redborough station about midnight, and many people liked to travel by it, arriving in town in the morning for their day's business, not much the worse if they had good nerves, for there was only one good train in the day. Next morning, accordingly, just after Hester had returned with Emma from that guilty and agitated walk, which she had taken with the hope of meeting Edward, and hearing something from him about his mysterious communication of the previous night, Roland too set out with much the same purpose, with a grave sense of embarking on an enterprise he did not see the end of. He met the two girls returning and stopped to speak to them. "'Hester has been at Redborough this morning already,' Emma said. "'I tell her she should have been at Mrs. Merridew's last night, Roland.' It was a very nice dance, the very nicest of all, I think, but perhaps that is because I am so soon going away. A regular thing is so nice, always something to look forward to, and you get to know everybody and who suits your steps best and all that. I have enjoyed it so very much. It is not like town, to be sure, but it is so friendly and homely. I shall miss it above everything when I go away." "'It was unkind not to come last night, my only chance,' said Roland. He had no conception that Hester could have the smallest share in the grave business of which his mind was full, and grave as it was, his mind was never too deeply engaged in anything for this lighter play of eye and voice. She seemed to wake up from a sort of abstraction which Emma's prattle had not disturbed when he spoke, 
and blushed with evident excitement under his glance. There was in her, too, a sort of consciousness, almost of guilt, which he could not understand. "'I hope you were sorry,' he added, "'and were not more agreeably occupied, which would be an additional unkindness.' "'I am afraid I can't say I am sorry.' Her colour varied, her eyes fell. She was not the same Hester she had been even last night. Something had happened to the girl. It flashed across his mind for the moment that Edward had been absent too, which gave a sting of pique and jealousy to his thoughts, but reassured himself, remembering that these two never met except at the Meridews. Where could they meet? Edward, who conformed to all Catherine Vernon's ways, though with resentment and repugnance, and Hester, who would conform to none of them. He was glad to remind himself of this as he walked on, disturbed by her look, in which there seemed so much that had not been there before. She seemed even to have some insight into his own meaning, some sort of knowledge of his errand, which it was simply impossible she could have. He told himself that his imagination was too lively, that this little society, so brimful of individual interests, with its hidden motives and projects, was getting too much for him. He had not been in the habit of pausing to ask what so-and-so was thinking of, what that look or this meant. In ordinary society it is enough to know what people say and do. When you begin to investigate their motives, it is a sign that something is going wrong. The next thing to do would be to settle down among them and become one of the Redborough Coterie, to which suggestion Roland, with a slight shiver, said, Heaven forbid. No, he had not come to that point. Town and freedom were more dear to him than anything he could find here. Hester, indeed, if he was sure he could afford it, might be a temptation, but Hester by no means meant Redborough. She would not cling to the place which had not been very gracious to her. But he could not afford it, he said to himself, peremptorily, as he went on. It was not a thing to be thought of. A young man making his way in the world, living as yet a bachelor life, may have a little house at Kilburn with his sister, but that would not at all please him with a wife. And Hester meant her mother as well. It was out of the question. It was not to be thought of. But why did she look so strangely conscious? Why was she so pale, so red, so full of abstraction and agitation today? If anything connected with himself could have caused that agitation, Roland could not answer for it what he might be led to do. This thought disturbed him considerably from the other and graver thoughts with which he had started, but he walked on steadily all the same to the bank and knocked at the door of Edward's room. Edward was seated at his table reading the morning's letters with all the calm of a reasonable and moderate man of business a model banker with the credit and comfort of other men in his hands. He looked up with a smile of sober friendliness and held out his hand to his visitor. He did not pretend to be delighted to see him. The slightest, the very most minute shadow of a consciousness that this was not an hour for a visitor was on his tranquil countenance. "'You man of pleasure,' he said." After your late hours and your dances, how do you manage to find your way into the haunts of business at this time in the morning? And he glanced almost imperceptibly at his letters as he spoke. I am in no hurry, said Roland. Read your letters. You know I have nothing particular to do here. I can wait your leisure, but I have something to say to you, Vernon, if you will let me. My letters are not important. Of course I will let you. 
I am quite at your disposal, Edward said. But there was still a shade of annoyance, weariness, as at a person importunate who would not take a hint and convey himself away. I wanted to speak to you about the subject of our conversation yesterday. Yes, which was that? It was important enough to have remained in my memory, said Roland with a little offence, feeling himself put in the wrong from the beginning. I mean the proposals we were discussing. Your ideas on the subject of the... Oh, that! But you put a stop to all my ideas, Harry and you, in your wisdom. I thought you must have meant that little matter about Anne Catherine's books. Yes, it seemed to me, so far as my lights went, that the proposals were very promising, and I might have stood out against Harry, who will never set the Thames on fire, until you came down upon me with your heavy guns, you whom I expected to be on my side. Then you have really given it up, cried Roland with a sigh of relief. Didn't you mean me to do so? That is what I thought, at all events. You were so determined about it that I really don't see what else I could have done. Unless, he said with a smile, I had been a capitalist and completely independent, as you said. I am most thankful to hear it, Vernon. I had not been able to divest myself of the idea that you were still hankering after it, said Roland. And I came, intending to say to you that if your heart was really set upon it, rather than that you should put yourself into hands perhaps not so scrupulous. Ah, I see. Rather than that a rival should get the business, let us speak plainly, said Edward with a pale smile. That is not speaking plainly. It is altogether different from my meaning. But take it so, if you please. I am glad to know that there is no necessity for my intrusion anyhow, Roland said, and then there was a little pause. At last Edward got up and came forward, holding out his hand. Pardon the little spite that made me put so false an interpretation on your motive, Ashton. I know that was not what you meant. I was annoyed, I confess, that you did thwart me yesterday in a matter I had so much at heart. I felt that you were annoyed, but what could I do? I can only advise according to my judgment. Anyhow, Vernon, I came here intending to say, let me do the best I can for you if you persist. Don't throw yourself among those who promote that kind of speculation, for they are not to be trusted to. But I am above measure glad to find that you have no hankering after it. That is far the best solution. You take a weight off my mind, Roland said. Edward did not answer for the moment. He went back and reseated himself at his table. When he showed his face again, Roland saw he was laughing. After all you said to me yesterday, and Harry... I think of Harry's grand argument coming down upon me like a sledgehammer, as potent and, alas, quite as heavy. How could you think it possible that I should persist? I am not such a determined character. Besides, don't you know I have never been trained to act for myself? His laugh, his look, were not very convincing, but at all events they were conclusive. After another pause, Roland rose. I am interfering with your work, he said. I thought it my duty to come at once— but now that it's all over, I must not waste your time. Pardon my officiousness. Nothing of the sort, said Edward, smiling cheerfully. The kindest feeling. I know it is. Are you going to see Harry? He is in his room, I know. Yes, I think I'll just speak to him. There is some football match that Emma wants to see. More pleasuring, said Edward, and laughed again. There was in him such an air of having found his visitor out that Roland could not divest himself of a certain embarrassment. 
Edward, he felt, knew as well as he did that he was going to report his failure to Harry. It fretted him beyond description to be thus seen through. He, who had thought himself so much more than a match for any provincial fellow of them all, but you are quite right to consult Harry about football. He is the greatest possible authority upon that subject, Edward said. Oh, it is not of the slightest importance. It is merely that Emma, who does not really care a straw for football, and only wants something to do or see, that is surely reason enough," said Edward. And his complaisance went so far that he left his papers again. And led the way to Harry's room, where he looked in, saying, "Here's Ashton come to inquire about that match." "Eh, match?" cried Harry in much surprise. Then his faculties kindled at the sight of Roland's face. "Will you play for us, Ashton? I didn't know you went in for football. I just wanted a man to be. It was for Emma. Your sister told her she must go and see it." "I'll leave you to your explanations," said Edward with a laugh of triumph. And indeed, the two conspirators looked at each other somewhat crestfallen when he had gone away. He takes it quite lightly," said Roland, with a sense of talking under his breath, as if he had never thought of the matter again. Does not conceal that he was vexed, but says, "Of course, there was an end when I came down upon him with my heavy guns." Then they looked at each other guiltily, ashamed, though there was nothing to be ashamed of, like plotters found out. Well, that's something tidied over," Harry said. "I hope so, but I must not stay to confirm his suspicions. Tell me when the match is for Emma, for she does want to go and see it. That's quite true. I don't care for girls about," said Harry. "They never understand the game, and it makes fellows nervous. It's on Saturday if she wants to come. I'll tell her it makes fellows nervous," said Roland as he went away. He said it in a louder tone than usual that he might be heard in Edward's room, and then despised himself for doing so. Altogether, he had seldom felt more small or more completely baffled and seen through than when he retired from those doors which he had entered with so kind a purpose. It is embarrassing to have the tables turned upon you, even in the smallest matters. He felt that he had been made to appear officious, intrusive, deceitful, even to himself. Making up plots with one man against another, prying into that other's purposes, attributing falsehood to him—this was how his generous intention was cast back upon his hands. He tried to smile cynically and to point out to himself the foolishness of straining to do a good action, but he was not a cynic by nature, and the effort was not successful. In any way, however, in which it could be contemplated. It was evident that all had been done that it was possible to do. If Edward had made up his mind to the risk, he could not stand between him and ruin. The matter was taken entirely out of his hands. Edward, for his part, returned to his room and shut himself in with feelings much less victorious than those he had made apparent. The excitement of the great decision had a little failed and gone off. He was in the chill reactionary stage, wondering what might befall. Feeling the tugs of old prejudice, of all the traditions of honor in which he had been brought up, dragging at his heart, no man brought up as Edward had been could be without prejudices on the side of right. It alarmed and wounded him today to think that he had last night considered the property of the bank and its customers as a foundation upon which to start his own venture. The sophisms with which he had blinded himself in his excitement failed him now. 
The daylight was too clear for them. He perceived that it was other people's goods, other people's money, which he was risking, that even to take them out, to look at them, to think of them as in his power, was a transgression of the laws of honour. Those chill drawings back of customary virtue, of the prejudices of honour, from the quick march of passion which had hurried him past every landmark in that haste to be rich, which would see no obstacle in its way, plunged Edward into painful discouragement. He seemed to himself to have fallen down from a height at which he had been master of his fate, to some deep-lying underground where he was its slave, and could only wait till the iron car of necessity rolled on and crushed him. He had set, he felt, machinery in motion which he could not stop, which might destroy him. He sat and looked out affrighted upon all the uncomprehended forces which seemed to have got into movement against him. He, a poor adventurer with nothing that was his own, to thrust himself into the midst of the commercial movements in London, which nobody out of them could understand fully, he to risk thousands who had nothing, he to go into wind who had nothing to stand upon. He saw all round him not only destruction, not only ruin, but contempt and outrage. He had once seen a miserable Welsher hunted from a race-course, and the spectacle, so cruel, so barbarous, yet not unjust, came back to his mind with a horrible fascination. He remembered the poor wretch's hat battered down upon his head, blinding him, the clothes torn from his back, the cruelty with which he was pursued, and still more, the mud and dirt that meant not only punishment, but unutterable contempt. Under that recollection Edward sat shivering. What was he better than the Welsher? Though he sat there, to all appearance spruce and cool, reading his morning's letters, he was already in this state of miserable depression and terror when Roland came in. The post that morning had brought him no fresh alarm, no new excitement. He was safe for that day. Nothing could yet have been done in his affairs that was not remediable. It was possible even that by telegraphing now he could stop all those horrible wheels of destiny and undo the decision of last night. As a matter of fact, no intention of doing so was in his mind. But the idea came uppermost now and then in the boiling up and ferment within him, to stop everything still, to relapse into the Edward of three months ago, submissive, respectable, keeping every punctilio of the domestic laws as well as those of recognized honesty and prudence. But he never meant it. He was alarmed at himself, shaken out of all that ease which excitement gives, that possibility of believing what we wish. But though everything that last night pointed to success seemed now to point to despair, he felt himself clinging on to the chance with desperation commensurate with the gloomy prospect. Whatever it was to lead to, he must yet go on. After all, prudence itself sometimes fared as badly as hardihood. An investment that had been calculated upon as the surest and safest would sometimes turn out disastrous. Who could tell? The chances of money were beyond all calculation, and after all, no one could say that the ruin of the bank would be for his good. It would be ruin to himself. It was not a thing that anybody could suppose he would risk without deliberation. He was in this condition, surging and seething, when Roland visited him and brought him suddenly to himself with the force which an encounter with the world outside 
so often gives to a struggling spirit. He felt with a wonderful sense of self-satisfaction that he was equal to the emergency and confronted it with a sudden gain of calm and strength which seemed to him almost miraculous, like what men engaged in holy work are justified in considering help from above. It could not be help from above which supplied Edward with self-possession and strength for his first steps in the career of evil, but still the relief was great. He got the better of Roland. He extinguished the little virtuous plot which he divined between him and Harry, and he returned to his room with a smile on his face. But once back again there, he did not feel triumphant. He felt that he was not trusted, that already they suspected him of having broken loose from their society and acting for himself. He said to himself angrily that but for this he would probably have telegraphed to contradict that momentous letter of last night. But how could he do it now? It would be pandering to their prejudices, owning that he had taken an unjustifiable step. And how was it unjustifiable? Was it not he who was the virtual head, upon whose judgment and insight everything depended? Supposing Catherine to be consulted, as had ceased to be the case for some time, partly with, partly against her own will, but supposing her to be consulted now, would not she certainly give her adherence to Edward's judgment rather than Harry's? It was not a question there could be a moment's doubt about. She would shake her head and say, you are far more venturesome than ever I was, but if Edward really thinks, was not that always what she had said? And ten years of experience had given him a right to be trusted. He was acting for the best. He looked for nothing but success. It was nerves, mere nerves, that had affected him, a reaction from the excitement of last night. And thus everything settled down. When he had got over it, Edward was the most serene of all the doubtful group which surrounded him, not knowing what to make of him. Harry, who took a matter-of-fact view, came next. He now thought it highly probable, on the whole, that his cousin had thought better of it. How could he do anything else? He had not means of his own to risk to such an extent, which was a thought very satisfactory to Harry. Roland Ashton was as much dissatisfied as men usually are, who endeavour in vain to see into the minds of their neighbours, and offer good offices which are not wanted. But the most uneasy of all was Hester, who that day for the first time took upon her the most painful burden of women, the half-knowledge which is torture, which the imagination endeavours to supplement in a thousand unreal ways, knowing them to be unreal, and dismissing them as quickly as they are formed, and the bitter suspense, the sensation that at any moment things may be happening, news coming which will bring triumph or misery, but which you cannot foresee or accelerate or do anything but wait for. She did her best to pray, poor girl, breathing broken petitions for she knew not what, as she went about her little occupations all that lingering day. Surely he would try to see her again, to satisfy her, and tell her what it was he had done, and how it could be possible, winning or losing, to fly, as he had suggested, from everything here. To fly! How could it be? Why should it be? All the other mysteries came in that to wonder unspeakable and dismay. End of chapter 4 Read by Anne Erickson, Toronto